1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we want to talk about Republicans who have stood up to Trump. People like Jeff Flake and John McCain. They seem like truth telling heroes to a lot of liberals, but not to Rick Perlstein. The trouble with anti Trump Republicans later in this hour. Also, Sexual harassment in Washington. We've learned a lot about that in the last week and about the way Congress deals with complaints against its members. The procedures have been called, quote, flawed. Joan Walsh will comment. First up today, the biggest tax scam in history. That's what Paul Krugman calls the Republican tax bill now before the Senate. For comment, we turn to George Zornick. Of course, he's the nation's Washington editor. We reached him today in our nation's capital. George, welcome back.
3: Hi, thanks for having me back.
2: Well, we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon. We're not sure at this point what's going to happen for the rest of this week with the vote. The Washington Post is reporting this morning that, quote, Senate Republican leaders face rising odds they will have to radically alter their plan to overhaul the tax code as a spate of defections threatens to upend plans to pass the bill this week, close quote. What is the situation at this point, Tuesday afternoon?
3: For one thing, it's just sort of hard to decipher for outside observers because um, to, to a large extent, Republicans have been following the same sort of game plan they had with the health care bill, which is, Um, Keep the details secret for as long as possible, Um, you know, forego the usual committee process where the bill is marked up and then we learn, you know, through this process what are the objections of of senators on both sides and what changes do they want to see. This has just been happening at such a a fast um, breakneck pace that it's been very difficult to discern exactly where people stand. it is true that this week, uh, as you noted, a lot of Republican senators are, are finally sort of turning their cards over and, and revealing what their objections are and and how they maybe can or cannot be met. Um, I agree with the Washington Post. Something's going to have to change. I mean, you look at a lot of these senators who are raising objections and some and we, and we can talk about it. Some really seem to be objections that can't be. Um, addressed. And maybe these are real no votes that were, will kill the bill. A lot of other senators are kind of preening, I think, either for the attention or just to get the provision that they particularly have a hobby horse about. And so, yeah, the, the, the post is right. The bill will be changed and, and we'll see if it passes.
2: Of course, there's tremendous pressure on 50 Republican senators, the number they have to get in order for this to pass, to vote yes. Because, of course, cutting taxes for the rich is the entire purpose of the Republican Party establishment. Everything else they do, uh, you know, uh, disfranchising voters and so on, is all for the purpose of electing senators and representatives who will cut taxes for corporations and the rich. The Republican donor class has spent... Billions of dollars over the last election cycles, getting us to this vote this week. And if the Senate fails to pass a bill, there will be hell to pay for everyone in the Republican Party, starting with Trump. So the pressure is must be tremendous on uh, on 50 Republican senators.
3: Oh, it's absolutely tremendous. The, the, you're exactly right. The people funding the Republican Party. This is sort of their Super Bowl. This is what it's all been about. Um, What's di- what differentiates this from the health care fight and what I think makes passage of a tax bill much more likely than Obamacare repeal is that there really weren't a lot of big interest groups that were pushing for that mess of a, a health care bill Republicans had proposed. I mean, you, you certainly had some big ideological donors on the, on the Republican side who were pushing for it. But it wasn't like America's health insurance plans or or the pharmaceutical companies were out there demanding this repeal. Quite the opposite, actually. Here you have the grand alliance of big corporations, Wall Street firms, the very wealthy, and and all the other commercial realtors. I mean, you can go down the list of people who really, really want this through. And so the pressure on Republicans has been so amazing that they've actually um, let the veil slip several times and said, you know, what, what comes to mind, Chris Collins from from New York said, oh, well, I have to pass this or my donors will kill me. And, you know, uh, yeah. Lindsey Graham said the same thing. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. And it's just it's it's shocking to see the play that they're making. When you look at the poll numbers of this bill, not just in California and New York, but in Republican states, is just god awful. I mean, you're looking at 20 percent of people, 22 percent of people who, who favor this bill. And they do actually seem to know the details. They understand what it does and they hate it. Republicans are not ignorant about that. They they understand the politics, but they're forced to choose between their voters and their donors and I think we'll see where they stand.
2: Well, let's talk about those senators who are tenderly called wavering. Let's talk about these the remaining deficit hawks. There are a few of them, uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee, Jerry Moran of Kansas, couple some people we've never really talked about, James Lankford of Oklahoma, say they want strict assurances that the tax plan will not add to the national debt after a decade. And they have been talking about putting in some form of automatic tax increase uh, if the debt does increase along the way. Uh, How realistic is this as something that might go into the bill?
3: Well, one, let's just point out that this is essentially a tacit acknowledgment that, of course, this bill is going to increase deficits. Of course, it's not going to provide the sort of magical economic growth that, that Republicans have been heralding. So if you're already building in um, sort of fail-safes for when that doesn't occur, it's, it's an admission that, of course, it won't. Um, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure how likely it is that these will get in there. I mean, it's just from a matter of public policy. It's It's a terrible idea. You know, when, when, when deficits would start to sharply spike, would be when there's a recession. So, because tax rece- receipts start to go down and the mandatory spending on um, certain welfare programs start to go up. So, what would happen then, likely in this case, of people who've looked at the Corker proposal and others similar to it, is that you'll have a recession, um, deficits will skyrocket, and all of a sudden you have tax increases. So, if you are the head of the government during this recession and you're trying to sort of pump stimulus in and and pull the economy out of the rut, um, a sudden and unexpected tax hike is very counterproductive.
2: And of course, the more likely course for Republicans when a recession hits, and of course, recessions are part of capitalism, is that. Uh, instead of raising taxes, they'll say, we have to cut spending on entitlements. We have to cut Medicare and Social Security. Isn't that the more likely uh, outcome of excessive deficit spending in the future?
3: Oh, yeah, and we don't need to wait for a recession for that to happen. I guarantee that within a month, and I mean a month, of this thing going into effect where all of a sudden then the federal debt projections get much scarier, all these deficit hawks are going to turn around like they weren't just supporting this bill that did it and and call for uh, dramatic reductions in Social Security spending, Medicare, Medicaid, domestic side stuff, anything they can get their hands on, on the domestic side, aside from the military, of course. Um, you know, a lot of these folks have been very quiet um, during this debate. People like, you know, um, Pete Peterson and the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and that other crowd that – under Obama was very, uh, you know, vocal about the, what they saw as dangerous uh, national debt and deficits. And they've been pretty quiet through this tax bill. They'll, they'll be back as soon as it passes. I have no doubt about that.
2: Do they really have to pass it this week? There's so much pressure that they've got to do something now. What's the matter with next week or even waiting until January?
3: Well, again, Republicans are not ignorant about how poorly this polls. They, they read the same stuff we do. They know it's toxic. And I think it's it's similar to the healthcare fight. The quicker you can do it, um, the fewer people are paying attention and the less time that you expose this to the limelight, the, the, the greater chances are, the less the public backlash is and the greater chances are you have a passage. Um, it, it's clearly an acknowledgment of that. I mean, I think they don't want the opposition to have more time to organize rallies and um, you know have people go home for Christmas and, and talk about this thing and all the terrible things that the bill will do. Um, I, I think they're trying to jam this through as quick as possible, particularly because when we get back from uh, the Christmas break, you know, you're know, you all of a sudden right in the, the middle or the beginning of the earnest 2018 campaign season. You're going to have primaries um, starting pretty early in the year for every House seat that's up, which is all of them, um, and a lot of key Senate seats. So they want to get this thing done before wavering members are looking down the barrel of, of an election in November
2: and let's remember that that i'm still saying if the senate passes this bill rather than when the senate passes this bill if the senate passes this bill it still has to be reconciled with the house bill and there are some intriguing differences between the two my personal favorite is a small one the house bill eliminates the deduction that school teachers have been taking when they buy school supplies for their students which has been $250 really Scrooge-like uh, on the part of the House. But the Senate not only keeps that deduction, it doubles it. So I guess that makes the Senate bill better, doesn't it?
3: Well, you know, in, in some ways it is. But I mean, both of these are just so toxic in different directions and for different reasons. And, and this is where it will be. You know, I've been contrasting it to the health care bill, which failed. What the health care bill had going for it was that if the Senate would have passed that bill if if John McCaden hadn't come out and put his thumb down, it would have sailed as is right through the House. I mean, there would have been no reconciliation, no conference committee. They they would have gone right ahead, it would have been on Trump's desk within a couple of days. That will not and cannot be the case with the two very different versions of the House and Senate bills. So then you're going to go to a conference committee, we're going back to the secrecy, where. A handful, I think it's maybe 12 negotiators between the House and Senate, in a, in a dark room, hammer out a, a compromise bill. Of course, there will be a compromise between Senate Republicans and House Republicans. Democrats will have essentially no leverage here. And then they'll try to rush that through, but then that has to face a vote again in the House, again in the Senate. So um, although Republicans may want to get this thing done as soon as possible, I don't see it being all that fast.
2: And what are the big sticking points for the House from the Senate bill as it currently exists?
3: Well, the the large scale thing is that in the House, you have a lot more people who are at least ostensibly serious deficit hawks and concerned about the deficit. And the way that Ryan treated it was just different than how Republicans did. Um, That, I think, you know, you're seeing, you mentioned um, Senator Moran from Kansas, who in the Senate had a really pretty strong objection to this bill that may not be resolvable. And that's so interesting because, um, as you know, Kansas passed a, a tax reform package under Governor Brownback a few years ago, very similar, well, similar outlines to what Congress is now considering, and it literally bankrupted the state. I mean, I don't mean that euphemistically, that everything went completely haywire when they passed this thing. So Moran, who's certainly no liberal, looked at that and said, it may not be the greatest idea for the country, and there are a lot more Morans in the House who kind of ran on this stuff in, in 2010 and got elected in the Tea Party wave and, you know, do on some level take deficits and debt seriously and gaming the projections um, for how this will affect long-term debt and, and how do you address that is, is, it manifests in a lot of little policy debates, but that's going to be sort of the, the crux of the battle.
2: George Zornick, read him at Thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Now we need to talk about sexual harassment in Washington. We've learned a lot about that in the past week and about the way Congress deals with complaints against its members. Those procedures have been called flawed. For this, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and an MSNBC political analyst. She's also the author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks, John. I'm glad to be back. Well, let's start with what we've learned from the John Conyers case about how Congress handles complaints of sexual harassment by its own members. Just to review briefly, Conyers is the venerable Democratic representatives from Michigan. He's been head of the House Judiciary Committee. He's been accused of sexual harassment now, I think, by three women as of this hour. And Koki Roberts made a startling admission on one of the Sunday talk shows. She said, quote, every female in the press corps knew, close quote, to avoid being in an elevator with Conyers. The Conyers case has opened up all these things we didn't know before about the procedures Congress uses to deal with complaints of sexual harassment. What have we learned about that?
1: Well, I think we've learned in the last couple of weeks that Congress somehow has a secret slush fund from which it pays uh, you know, out a lot of uh, worker complaints, settles a lot of worker complaints, but a lot of them, we don't know how many, do involve sexual harassment. We, we don't know how much of uh, the, the Conyers settlements have come from congressional coffers or from his own, you know, per- personal funding. We don't know a lot. And I think Nancy Pelosi got in a lot of trouble over the weekend uh when she defended Conyers and called him an icon. Uh, you know, he has been an icon on civil rights issues. He's the original uh sponsor of the single payer bill that Bernie Sanders has Joined him on. Uh, he's he's sponsored a, l- a lot of great legislation, although he's been, I would say, declining in effectiveness in re- in recent years. And I, you know, I think that what Leader Pelosi was in the process of learning was was how completely flawed, not transparent, unfair to women. Her own processes are. You know, she's the leader. She's the leader of the caucus, although she's not Speaker of the House. And I think that you know she and Paul Ryan and. and their all of their leadership teams share share the blame for a process that I think really puts women back on their heels if they do get up the courage to accuse somebody like John Conyers.
2: Yeah, there is something called the Congressional Accountability Act, which set up the Office of Compliance, but it's been operating, as you say, in Secrecy. It was kind of forced to reveal that they've paid seventeen million dollars in taxpayer funds to settle two hundred sixty claims. But these are claims about all kinds of things: workplace safety, employment, civil rights. They haven't broken it down. Now
1: they're. But it does include sexual harassment, and we don't. We don't have. It it should be broken down so we know what kind of things are going wrong up there and, and why they're spending our money like this. And specifically what women, uh, and presumably men, have been paid to uh, make claims of sexual harassment go away.
2: This law has not been changed since 1995. Well, of course, a lot of the rest of the world has changed in the way it regards sexual harassment since 1995. There are proposals now for the Office of Compliance to operate differently. What, what do you think are the most promising and the most important uh, initiatives on that front?
1: I think that women have to be uh, encouraged to come forward. I think they have to be believed when they come forward. I think they cannot be giving up any of their rights when they come forward. And I think we have to question the use of of these nondisclosure agreements when a settlement is made, whether it's by the Office of Compliance or by an individual lawmaker himself. Um, This is, is really part of why Congress can't fully get to the bottom of the Conyers' allegations, because there have been at least one or two—I uh, think at least two—settlements where the women are. It's it's. They're gagged, essentially. One of them has said if she is subpoenaed by the ethics committee, she will come forward, and a subpoena would be enough, I believe, to allow her to set aside uh, the nondisclosure agreement and talk. But it really is, I mean, when you say 1995, let's go back and think about what was going on back then. That's around the time that Bill Clinton got involved with Monica Lewinsky, and even though that was a consensual relationship uh, and she was technically an adult, it was certainly an abuse of power. And you really wonder why... People, I don't want to blame Democrats alone i don't I certainly don't want to put this on women for God's sake, but in this period when when uh, the nation was really being rocked by all of these Clinton allegations, uh, and just a few years after we had our Anita Hill wake up call, there was still very little as far as I know uh, effort to modernize and Make fair this process, and and make it work in such a way that it wasn't merely a place where allegations go to die and where women, and perhaps the men, get paid off, uh, but the the nature of the behavior of these legislators uh, also gets hidden. And then you and you have a John Conyers who a Cokie Roberts can say, "Well, we knew never to get on the elevator." Really, I mean, I'm not blaming Cokie Roberts. I worked in Sacramento for a while, and we had the same, we had the exact same uh, standards and and uh, female solidarity across Republican and Democratic lines. We warned one another. You know, you knew whose office not to go into alone. You knew not to get into an elevator with certain people. This is the reality in state houses and in the Capitol in Washington. And it's kind of depressing to me that it's taken us so long to shape up the way we govern these people when we've known for so long that this kind of power leads mostly men, not most men, but mostly men, astray.
2: Well, we have seen many times over the past 10 or 20 or more years that individual senators and uh, congressmen can be forced to resign when they're charged with sexual offenses, but those have not changed the system, and that's why today we want to look at how does the system work or what does the system need so that we're not just dealing with calling on individuals to resign. But I do want to talk with you about one individual who's very important to us Al Franken, I know you've interviewed Al Franken, I've interviewed Al Franken on on this show. Uh, After 10 days of seclusion in Washington, Al Franken appeared Sunday to talk to the Minnesota uh, media about the multiple accusations of inappropriate contact with women. On Monday, he returned to Capitol Hill, talked to the reporters there. He said, I know I've let a lot of people down, deeply apologetic. There are uh, people who say a lot of people say Al Franken should quit because we need a policy of zero tolerance from now on. What do you think about the Al Franken and what do you think about the need for a policy of zero tolerance?
1: Uh, you know i 'm just not there, uh, John. I feel for a couple of reasons first of all we're we 're in a situation now where Donald Trump has denied the allegations of sixteen women, and Roy Moore has denied the allegations of nine and These allegations are not spotty allegations they 're not flimsy they are most of them most of these allegations come from women who have actually allowed their names to be used, which in cases of sexual harassment, abuse, molestation does not happen. They're very well documented charges. But you have a situation where Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary says, well, the difference between Donald Trump and Roy Moore and Al Franken is that Al Franken has basically admitted something went on and apologized. The president and Roy Moore have not. So you're never going to have a level playing field. You have a situation where these prominent Republicans brazen it through, deny, deny, deny. And so if, if we insist that Al Franken, for example, I'm, I want to separate him from Conyers. Conyers yes. may be on, on his way out the door. Yes. But Al Franken, after a right-wing uh, radio talk show host, 12 years later brings up some you know, bad behavior on a USO tour, and then three women, two of them anonymous, say he grabbed their butts during a photo opportunity, First of all, that it, it, it's not at all in the realm of what Conyers or Trump or more are accused of. Right. And I, I feel as if, if he did resign, it would, it would not make Democrats more pure or politically respectable. It would make them the party of the guy who had to resign. You know, there's really this, this situation now where if Republicans are going to brazen it out, but Democrats are going to throw their guys, and they are guys right now, Overboard, then you're going to have a narrative controlled by Republicans that yeah, well it's the Democrats that have the problem. Look, poor ex Senator Al Franken admitted it, and he got you know he got canned. Trump and more just brazened it on through. And I guess the other thing I'll say, you know that Al Franken's this first allegation anyway was floated on the Twitter stream of. The noted. uh, There's a bad word for what he does. It involves rat, uh, you know, a bad thing to do to a rat. Uh, Roger Stone uh, goes back to Nixon in terms of Republican dirty tricks. Roger Stone announced John Podesta's time in the barrel before Podesta's emails were leaked. And the night before the Franken allegations came out, Roger Stone announced that Franken was going to spend time in the barrel uh, breitbart.com had a story prepared about these allegations so i'm not saying that the right the vast right-wing conspiracy caused al franken to do these dumb and awful things but i am saying they were part of a strategy to broadcast them far and wide and to make it maximally embarrassing and difficult for Franken. And so I think we have to pay attention to that too. There's a whole industry here that's working against Democrats and progressives on the right. And we can't ignore that. We can't be stupid about it.
2: Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Joan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Finally today, we want to talk about the Republicans who have stood up to Trump. They seem like truth-telling heroes to a lot of liberals, but not to Rick Perlstein. He's the award-winning author of the bestsellers about our political history, most recently The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, and The Rise of Reagan. Before that, he published the classic Nixon Land. It was a New York Times bestseller and was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Good to hear from you. A lot of us were delighted to see a few Republicans At last, standing up to Trump, especially Senator Jeff Flake, the junior Republican from Arizona, on the Senate floor, he denounced what he called Trump's, quote, reckless, outrageous, and undignified behavior, unquote. This was... October 24th, the day he announced he was quitting the Senate, he deplored Trump's, quote, flagrant disregard for truth and decency, close quote. Don't you wish there were more Republicans like Jeff Flake?
0: Um, I'm (laughs) ambivalent on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Republicans like Jeff Flake are like the Republicans we couldn't stand and were worried about destroying the universe, you know, until Trump came along. And one of the things I worry about is – so Jeff Flake wrote a book called Conscience of a Conservative in which he explained his objections to Trump. And uh, in the book, he inadvertently reveals with a striking clarity uh, just how low the standard is for conservatism, the moral standard, the kind of political standard, even without Trump. And what worries me is that these Republicans, who are basically making no apologies for how the conservatism that came before Trump helped contribute to Trump, what worries me is that uh, after Trump is gone, uh, if Trump is gone prematurely, they're going to be able to claim themselves uh, as uh, these kind of noble, heroic figures. and. The worst-case scenario uh, is that we'll basically have locked in uh, the kind of non-Trump conservatism as even more firmly into the center of American politics. The Overton window, as they put it, uh, will have uh, moved to the right. So I would like to see uh, some of these conservatives who are saying nasty things about Trump really begin to look a lot harder into in the mirror, acknowledging, for example, the damage that supply side economics has done, which is, you know, something that uh, Jeff Flake is uh, an extremely uh, enthusiastic proponent of, it, of to this day.
2: I see what you mean, but they, they are making a distinction between traditional conservative politics and Trump that not all Republicans, most Republicans, are overlooking. If I could just quote the wonderful Jeff Flake some more. He deplored Trump's, quote, casual undermining of our democratic ideals and the personal attacks, the threats against principles, freedoms, and institutions, close quote. Uh, and his point is even conservatives— uh, should stand up to these things. Well, and-
0: why doesn't he? Well, well, he has nothing to say about uh, George W. Bush's undermining of our democratic ideals. And uh, George W. Bush now has joined the conservatives who are saying that basically, definitional, definitionally, what conservatives were up to before Trump came along was on a high moral level, and Trump somehow uh, falls from that high moral level. And don't forget, this is the guy who turned torture into an instrument of policy in the United States. This is the guy who laundered a conspiracy theory about weapons of mass destruction to create the worst geostrategic blunder in the history of the United States. This is the guy who you know, deported Muslims. This is a guy who basically turned us into a garrison state. And suddenly, he says one nasty thing about Trump, and I'm referring to George W. Bush here, and he's washed in the blood of the lamb. And suddenly we're supposed to be nostalgic for George W. Bush. Yeah,
2: let me just, can I just read George W. Bush's quote from, in an October speech, he said that Trump had brought, quote, bullying and prejudice into our national life. I, I think you've made some, you've posed some a pretty telling critique of that view that in fact George yeah, W Bush a
0: historian that does that that's hard for me to stomach
2: yeah uh, well michelle goldberg wrote in the new york times against the the stand that you have taken He says, Jeff Flake is now arguing that telling the truth about Trump is more important than the career he spent a lifetime building. Oh,
0: that's interesting. You know, I respect her a lot. And I think that there is certainly, I'm not going to like, you know, go to my grave, you know, fighting for Jeff, that Jeff Flake is the most awful human being in the world. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, you know, in the case of Jeff Flake, he may well, uh, you know, he was was losing his career anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, he was going to go down in flames, and uh, like I say, if Trump gets gone, suddenly guys like Jeff Flake are the heroes, and you know, Jeff Flake 2020 is you know not not an inconceivable notion if Donald Trump is impeached, you know, because there has to be you know this population of Republicans who are acceptable, you know, who who, who are who don't have the Trump taint. So it was basically a costless move on his part. And, you know, conceivably could, could we we're down to profound political benefits. So I just don't buy that part of Michelle's argument. But let me give you another, you know, the, the piece I wrote that we're talking about and in these times also talks about a guy named Charlie Sykes, who's not nearly as famous as Jeff Blake, but he's been everywhere. He's been in the New York Times. He's been in the Washington Post. He's even been in the New York Review of Books. And he was kind of this very prominent uh, conservative talk radio host in Milwaukee, but a very, you know, kind of a big fish in a small bowl. And now by being the, you know, kind of the the conservative who criticizes Trump, suddenly he's nationally famous. So, you know, there's lots of energy against Trump. Don't forget that this is the guy who, you know, has whatever, a 35 percent approval rating, record low. So coming out against him does provide certain kinds of career benefits for conservatives.
2: Jeff Flake is not alone, as you say, and it's not just George W. Bush, of course whose brother was supposed to be the Republican uh, next president. There is Senator Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee, who had this hilarious line where he called the White House an adult daycare center. And after Trump sent out some particularly egregious tweets, Bob Corker said, somebody missed a shift today. (laughs) I think we can thank him for that.
0: Yeah, you know, that's great. But I wish these guys would kind of stand and fight instead of just, you know, retiring, you
2: know, John McCain. Then there's John McCain. His great line is he, he talks a lot about the revelations of the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia. And his line is there are a lot more shoes to drop on this centipede. Uh, <laughs> so drop him, brother. <laughs> Get dropping. But again, he is somebody who is uh, not going to run for re-election. Sadly, he, you know, he has brain cancer. But you have pointed out that that Bob Corker and John McCain and these other Republicans vote with Trump about something like ninety percent of the time. Yes,
0: like, yeah, those are those are remarkable uh, phenomenon. Where uh, I think. Corker and McCain, but definitely Jeff Flake. I think all three of them. The very day that Flake gave this, you know, resounding, you know, uh, uh, having at long last no sense of decency speech on the floor of the Senate, joins the vote to get rid of the, uh, you know, the the the, the Elizabeth Warren's, uh, you know, Bank Protection Bureau, uh, or not to get rid of it, but to make it, you know, harder for people to sue banks that defraud them. So, you know, uh, that's a pretty crystalline example of you know this is really kind of a backhanded favor on their part
2: of course we expect republicans to support tax breaks for the rich that's that's the bedrock you know position of the republicans but um right so
0: but why can't we use this moment in which you know trump uh, helps kind of like make the Republicans look especially stinky as leverage <laughs> to try to take down the entire Republican agenda and the damage it's done. Uh, this, you know, this goes back to the campaign where you know Hillary Clinton, you know, kind of gave her speech in which she said, "Oh, the alt-right is awful and they're they're so terrible and they're not like our traditional conservatives that we know and love at all," mm-hmm. and thereby kind of enshrining restri- conservatives traditional conservatism is, you know, something that was worthy of our respect. You know, I'm just going to hold to the position that it's not worthy of our respect <laughs> and that, you know, if they're going to hold on to Trump, we got to, you know, basically uh, uh, throw the anchor around them all and bring them all down, you know, and I think it's going to be harder to do when uh, we're kind of separating conservatives into the good guys who say, you know, nasty things about Trump's manners, basically, and uh, the bad guys who stick with Trump. They're all bad.
2: It it would be even harder to do if Trump launched a nuclear attack on North Korea. And, you know, tax breaks for the rich are one thing, but blowing up the world would be worse. Don't we need Republicans to help us stop him from doing that?
0: I, I, I I Completely, in the short term, I completely respect that argument. By the way, John, do you want to do you want to make some news on your air? Sure. If people go to esquire dot com, uh, I have a brand new interview up with Daniel Ellsberg about his new book, in which he reveals his belief that uh, if we decapitated, uh, invaded North Korea, or had some kind of military uh, action against North Korea, and Kim Jong Un died, that there might be some kind of uh, he, he suspects very strongly that there's some kind of dead hand device that would automatically launch a nuclear weapon against Seoul.
2: Yikes. Yikes. Uh, he
0: says, I'm pretty convinced that Kim, in fact, has also made provisions for massive retaliation if he is killed. So, so uh, all the more reason, yes, let's get rid of Trump. But, you know, is it easier to get rid of Trump with these Republican allies or if we kind of use the, let's just say, the dead hand of the entire Republican Party to help drag down Trump? That's that's something I'd like to consider.
2: Yeah, I know there's these political strategists uh, who you have referred to who point out that the best way to get rid of Republicans is not just to condemn them for their policy positions on taxes and health care, but to emphasize that they support the authoritarian, narcissistic, dangerous Trump. That means Trump hurts regular Republicans, and thus...
0: That's right. You know, uh, right here in Illinois, where we have a very, very competitive uh, Democratic primary for uh, governor against a truly awful Republican who's destroying the state, basically, by holding the budget hostage, named Bruce Rauner, Uh, J.B. Pritzker, uh, one of the Democratic candidates, is building his whole campaign around basically uh, saying that a vote for uh, Rauner is a vote for Trump. And clearly has some very strong focus group, because he's a billionaire. I'm sure he's done all the research, Mm -hmm. uh, research and and polling research that shows the best way to destroy a Republican named, named Rauner, like Rauner, who has, if anything, distanced himself from Trump, is by attacking the whole party as tainted by Trump. So maybe that's the way to go.
2: Maybe that's the way to go. And maybe we do not want more Republicans to follow the example of Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and John McCain.
0: I, I don't feel like I can go that far. Maybe I'm threading too fine a needle. You know, I, I'd like to see people calling a spade a spade and saying in good faith that Donald Trump is is, is disastrous and breaking things. But I guess what I want to do is uh, nudge them a little further. Uh, maybe maybe you know like 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 a teacher. I just like kind of level level them up and kind of bring them to the next transcendent level of wokeness, shall we say.
2: (laughs) Rick Perlstein is our teacher. His piece, Don't Trust the Anti-Trump Republicans, appears in the December issue of In These Times. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, John. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday. Now at thenation.com/slash-edge-of-sports. Take,
0: take, 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 take the
2: Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocketcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.